0: Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy.
1: Come back to notice that an EMDR podcast today in studio is Melissa and I
0: I know it's just us today
1: it hasn't been like that for, for a while, while. <laughs> I, mean, I guess there was one a couple months ago but it's not very often mm-hmm. that we get to just talk like we used to I
0: know it feels like a throwback to the the good old days it does <laughs> it
1: does so today we want to um, dive in on treatment planning and target sequencing Mm -hmm. so this is a really really exciting and important topic with emgr before we get into that topic we want to mention some trainings that we have coming up that um, if you're a regular listener you've heard us talk of these many times but we'll, we'll just share these dates with you guys again our case conceptualization and treatment planning approach that we utilize here at Beyond Healing Center is called Somatic Integration and Processing. Mm. And through that theory and that approach, we discuss in depth and in detail of how do we conceptualize cases and how do we begin to plan for treatment and approach treatment with our clients. So this this training is not specific to EMDR, Mm -hmm. but there is so much overlap.
0: That's right. In fact, uh, AIP, Adaptive Information and Processing, Um, is one of the underlying theories that is part of SIP. And that was done, you know, very intentionally on our part because, you know, Jen and I started as EMDR practitioners, so this is how we conceptualize. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when it came time to put together a really, really holistic um, understanding of how do we conceptualize every case that we interact with, whether we're uh, currently doing EMDR reprocessing phase or not, uh, what do we find relevant in AIP is absolutely part of that.
1: Yes. So if this is a training you'd be interested in finding more information on, reach out to us. We have our next training dates are October 7th through the 9th, and we will be in Tulsa in person. Mm -hmm. And I think there's only a few seats left um, available for the the in-person, but we're doing it as a hybrid training. So we'll also have a virtual option, and we have several other seats available on there if you wanted to join us virtually.
0: Mm -hmm. And we would love to have you. Because yes. it's a super fun training. Well, and one of the things, you know, that yeah, I just kind of wanted to share about SIP is that as we've been training it and really kind of helping clinicians to integrate this into their practice, we are. In kind of constant communication with those of you that have taken it and are beginning to practice it to really learn how to help you all integrate it into your practice. And so SIP is really becoming um, kind of the way that we talk about everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, we have a lot of people that follow our work and that do a lot of our trainings and that um are you know learning a lot from us, so we wanted to let you guys know that this is kind of our our core training at this point. SIP one is sort of the foundational training of if you want to learn the way that we uh, think about therapy as a whole. If you want to understand why do we focus on the things that we focus on why do we do what we do the way that we do it etc emdr and even beyond that then sip one is really the place to start Um, we also have a lot of trainings in the works that are built on sip um, including SIP supervision model. Mm -hmm. Um, and these are things that we're kind of constantly developing. So if you're interested in really kind of understanding our language, the way that we work, why we do what we do, then this is sort of the foundational course that will set you up for everything else in the future that we're doing.
1: Yeah. And the most exciting thing about it being SIP one is it means there's an SIP (laughs) two. Yes, That we are going to get to train for the very first time October 5th. Through the 7th. Yeah. And um, that's a training that we're really, really actively working on mm-hmm. getting everything polished and, and fine I'm so excited right now. about it. Yes. Yeah. Me too. So we will be um, doing that training here in Springfield and it will be a seated training with also a virtual option. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to come to Springfield, Missouri and see our center and come do the training with us, we would love that. Yeah. Um, if you are already trained in SIP 1, you are able to register for SIP 2. If you're not, you could try to jump in on that Tulsa training and then make it in time for the October training, um, for the second. Yeah, the second one.
0: So. Yeah, and SIP two. Um, part of the reason why I think we're also excited about it is that you know SIP one is the foundational course where we sort of lay the groundwork of everything, but then in SIP two we go real deep (laughs) and talk about things that you know we're all incredibly passionate about and one of the things that i'm most excited about is that it's a really thorough exploration of personality formation what makes an individual the individual that they are and what are the universal pieces of personality formation um, both that bring in um, biological neurobiological neurophysiological elements to that um, and really looking at how when we conceptualize this way it informs oh my gosh every everything about the way that we interact with our clients but also just as human beings um, and it is such an answer to help us understand what dissociation actually is um, rather than a symptom and or a nuisance. Um, it gives some real depth and clarity to what that is in the human nervous system and yeah i'm just super excited about it (laughs) it's gonna be great yeah so
1: if you want more information on those trainings um you want to register or you want to see other dates that we have for the remainder of the year when we'll be offering them email our um, training email which is training at em Training at Mm BeyondHealingCenter.com, not at EMDR. (laughs) And um, one of our support staff will get back with you and get you all the information you need and help you find out where to
0: register if you're ready. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of case conceptualization, that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. It is. Mm
1: -hmm. So this, the whole topic of treatment planning and target sequencing Mm -hmm. to really, um, and, and this is maybe just more of my opinion, Well, so we'll see if you agree with this. I think you probably
0: (laughs) I usually do.
1: (laughs) The difference between an EMDR clinician and a great EMDR clinician. Oh,
0: that's quite a statement.
1: Is how well they can conceptualize the case, Mm -hmm. where are these symptoms coming from, and how they can determine what treatment approach do we use. Mm -hmm. So it comes with this deep knowledge and understanding of EMDR so that then we can let go of the rigid, strict, step-by-step-by-step, and be more fluid and flexible with the treatment approach that we're utilizing to meet the individual client exactly
0: where they're at. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, one of the analogies that you and I kind of recently explored around this idea was the analogy of driving a car and how, um, you know, EMDR is the vehicle that we're driving. But, you know, we all know that while a car can be the same, the driver behind the wheel makes a great difference (laughs) in the experience of the ride. Um, And, you know, what you're saying, Jen, is very much what's the difference between being a 16-year-old barely uh, legal driver versus a race car stunt driver, right? And that has a lot to do with our ability to conceptualize what's going on with our clients and really know the subtleties of how to work within the neural networks in an effective way. And uh, to know where we're going and why we're going there and how to get where we want to go and all of those questions are uh, so much the art and the science but mostly the art of what EMDR is and this topic um, treatment planning case conceptualize conceptualizing and target sequencing as far as consultation questions go this is like the number one Mm -hmm. for us and we, we we've talked about that before in fact It is what inspired us to write a training all about case conceptualization um, because it is a really underdeveloped skill for a lot of us when we're first coming out of grad school Um, i don't think a lot of us had classes or had a lot of guidance on how no i yeah like we had guidance on interventions on um kind of the higher level you know what is therapy and why is it effective but the nuances and the complexities of all the different ways that a human being can show up in the room, we really didn't get a lot of guidance on. Um, And one of the things that we know is true uh, from research on therapists and our longevity in the field is that case conceptualization skills are one of the things that determine not only how effective we are at our job, but also job satisfaction. Mm -hmm. How confident do we feel in the work that we do and how much do we enjoy the work that we're doing which makes total sense to me because when we feel a sense of mastery in the work that we're doing when we feel like i know why i'm doing what i'm doing and i can explain it to myself and to my client and i feel a cre- clear trajectory of where we're going and how to get there i feel so much more supported and confident as a yeah. therapist yeah mm-hmm.
1: and emdr basic training offer so many great, um, step-by-step protocol for the Mm -hmm. actual reprocessing, but it's impossible to have a step-by-step protocol for treatment planning. Um, and we have some good guides. And as we begin to present the way that we were trained and the way that we practice, Um, with treatment planning and target sequencing, it may or may not align with what you learned.
0: Yeah. So every
1: trainer does it a little bit differently. There's not a right or a wrong, a Mm -hmm. good or a bad, but just kind of taking in this way as an option Mm
0: -hmm. and then
1: being able to, you know, modify, adjust, merge um, the different approaches to really meet what your client is needing. Yeah. So when it comes to treatment approaches, um, we practice in a way of considering three different primary approaches and one being acute focused, Mm -hmm. another belief or belief driven or cluster approach. And then the third one being a more developmental approach. Mm -hmm. And each one of those comes with their own pros and cons. Yeah. Um, it comes with their own considerations. And I think we'll just kind of take this next section of this podcast to talk about those three approaches and maybe just explore some cases of what that looks like to utilize those.
0: Well, and I I think I would want to say from the outset, because it will become apparent very quickly that both Jen and I have a significant bias on this topic. (laughs) We have a strong bias towards the developmental approach. And so that's going to come through loud and clear as we're talking. But what also is important is that just because we have a bias and a desire for all of our clients to get to experience that kind of approach does not mean that the other methods have no validity Mm -hmm. or are not very necessary sometimes. And we both use all three approaches even though we want to use developmental with everybody. Right, Mm
1: -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Depending, there's all all kinds of considerations that will guide you into which approach to use. And knowing that as we talk about these three, whichever one you determine is the, the best fit for your client, know that it's the best fit for right now. Yes. That may change by the next session. Yeah. Um, that might change week by week, month by month. Like We want to stay flexible with it, but we're utilizing an approach that's going to work for right now. And it's very helpful to begin to think about how have intention behind what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The reason uh, selecting a treatment approach is so important as if we get lost in the like, just week by week, let's just target whatever's coming yeah. up. A client who has a lot of trauma, their experience in life is chaotic. Yeah. And so then processing becomes very chaotic, Chaotic, and it feels like we're not making any ground, we're not seeing any change. So at least having a framework of one of these approaches in Mm -hmm. mind, but being flexible to allow that to change as needed, gives us kind of a roadmap, a sense of direction, um, an anchor as we go throughout this to say like, this is kind of our focus in here, Um, but then always staying flexible with meeting the client where they're at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, um, you know, doing that more kind of scattershot whack-a-mole version of target sequencing, there there is room for that, especially at the beginning where we're kind of unclear and still getting to know our client. Um, so sometimes we're, we're easing into getting a really clear direction mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, because what we don't want to do is feel like I can't start, I can't do anything until I have a perfectly clear picture and a perfectly written treatment plan. Neither Jen or I practice that way. (laughs) Far from it. Um, And so just know as we're talking that there is a lot of flexibility and nuance, um, but the goal is always to get to clarity as soon as we can. And sometimes that takes a little while because if they're coming in with a lot of chaos or maybe they're coming in with a lot of dissociation, Mm And they don't really understand what in the world is going on with them. So it takes us a little while to get to know them, to learn the cues of their nervous system, to get a clear picture. Um, but having an idea of where we're trying to get to in terms of clarity is really helpful in organizing even those early sessions where it may feel a little bit more jumbled and chaotic and scattershot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So we'll start with acute focused mm-hmm. um, treatment plane, and that's really looking at um, a symptom, however, their symptom is showing up. If that is a result of a single or a few potential targets, mm-hmm. and that symptom then is manifesting after those trauma experiences occurred, the yeah. acute focus is let's just target that single target, that single incident, or the the um, few incidences that are of that same sort, mm-hmm. and we'll target those. And as a direct link, we will see the symptoms and the presentation change. Right. So a, a really easy example of this would be an individual who's in a car accident mm-hmm. and then has anxiety about driving. Right. Right there's a direct link the symptom started right after that incident occurred and there's clear direction of that happening. Mm-hmm. Now with that client there may be two or three car accidents that we right. end up targeting all of those and we see the symptoms around anxiety changing right. and, you know, clearing up. We would utilize that in those cases. Now some of you may be thinking hey i don't have any clients who have just one single trauma exactly right you don't (laughs) but that could still be a treatment approach that's appropriate for the work that they are hiring you to do with them that's right well
0: and one of the one of the reasons why we do end up doing this sometimes is entirely practical and circumstantial i have a handful of clients that due to budget restrictions or to the fact that they don't live nearby Mm -hmm that they come and see me once a year, (laughs) uh, for one session, you you know, and now it's a three to four hour session, but within that time limit, we can only do, uh, maybe two targets if we're lucky. Um, and because of the nature of the circumstance around that, we are keeping it very, very tight and restricted. And so we're using that more acute approach. Um, so if you have somebody that has limited means, um, that, you know, you know, this is not going to be able to be a long-term relationship. The acute focus is sometimes the most ethical choice because opening up a whole bunch of material that we're not going to have the time and the space to attend to well is usually not a good choice. It's not an appropriate choice. So those practical considerations are sometimes the main driver behind choosing that acute approach.
1: And if the symptom is, created by a single incident, um, it will clear up once mm-hmm. you address it with the acute focused. If there is an entire history of experiences that, you know, create anxiety in this individual as a whole, and then the car accident happens and it really exacerbates that presentation, right. it won't necessarily take the anxiety away as, as a whole, but we're going to see symptom reduction. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the acute focused approach is more about symptom reduction than complete alleviation of a symptom. And that's appropriate in some context depending on resources and restrictions. Or it may be looking at, hey, this individual has so many symptoms that are so dysregulating in their life, let's do some symptom reduction till we get to a more stabilized place mm-hmm. and then can go start accessing some of the core roots of the trauma, right. move back into more you know childhood-like experiences. But for the sake of their own regulation, we may just be focused on some of their more adulthood experiences to reduce the disturbance, not necessarily with the intention of fully clearing it.
0: Yeah. Um, it can also be really effective in increasing somebody's motivation to do that deeper Absolutely. work. So if somebody's coming in and saying, Hey, I heard EMDR can <laughs> fix me around, you know, my anxiety due to this car wreck. Can you fix me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are always fun conversations. Um, you know, what we can do, especially if we're exploring us and realize oh, this probably has its roots and some other stuff. Um, our approach is that we're very upfront with clients about that reality, but also also respectful of their choice to keep it restricted. But in the midst of doing that acute uh, uh, treatment plan where we're keeping it very, very restricted, The client often experiences a new kind of self-awareness around the roots of that issue and they feel it they have a felt sense of it that makes a much bigger impact than you know me as a therapist telling them hey this probably goes back to some other stuff Mm -hmm. and so in that embodied experience and awareness sometimes their motivation to actually address the root will go up and we can have that conversation about opening up the treatment plan and maybe doing something more issue-focused or developmental. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Another example of that um, is someone who comes in with a lot of anxiety about EMDR. So rather than, oh, this is going to fix it and let's go towards that, it's the opposite of I fear this or maybe I tried it before Mm -hmm. and it it didn't feel good at all or I'm afraid of what I'm going to experience. And so the now acute-focused target is the idea of doing EMDR right. or their exposure to, you know, a friend who talked negatively mm, about it or their yes. own experience, yeah. we know that that likely could float back and we could find something even earlier around, I'm afraid to feel all my own feelings or I won't have control, mm-hmm. whatever their fears come back from. But we start with just the target of doing EMDR. Right that is such a cool first target to do mm-hmm. what like what's the image of the worst part, the worst thing that could happen and how do we you know walk through an assessment and reprocessing mm-hmm. their fear of EMDR yeah. um, alleviating that and then same in the same scenario as Melissa was talking about shining light on what else is back
0: there mm-hmm. that then needs to become a target yeah yeah I uh, you know as much as I don't prefer to do the acute focus, there are some really cool things about it because you get, Uh, like really clear results in a very short amount of time because you're not biting off as big of a chunk. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, on the other hand, that does mean that we're not getting the generalization, right? We're going really deep in one very, very tiny areas sort of like drilling a deep hole rather than you know excavating a whole field Mm -hmm. Um, and both are worthwhile as long as we understand what is this going to accomplish and what is it not going to accomplish Um, we're not going to get that generalization however we are going to get significant shift likely in that one particular area and that can be very meaningful to clients especially if they're circumstantially restricted
1: yeah so the second approach being belief-driven mm-hmm. or cluster approach. Mm-hmm.
0: Also called issue-focused sometimes, you'll hear, mm-hmm. p- hear people use that language.
1: So that being more so looking at a single memory network, like a multiple memories that are all linked and connected within a similar network. So we're getting a little bit more broad here In the metaphors that Melissa was using, we're not drilling just a single hole really deep. We're now broadening it to be a little bit larger Mm -hmm. of a hole. Mm -hmm. And so there's more memories that are going to be coming up, more um, different variations of presentation that we're looking at, but we're finding what is the link that connects each of these experiences. Mm -hmm. Belief can be one of them. So a negative cognition of. I'm un- unlovable. I'm
0: not good enough.
1: I'm not good mm-hmm. enough. I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. Looking for a negative cognition that says, "What are the experiences that come up that represent that belief for you?" Or yeah. when, when in life did you feel like that statement was absolutely true? Mm-hmm. What's your evidence that that's true about yourself? Mm. And we're finding the list of cognitions that, or the list of experiences that go with that cognition, and working through those and processing those it could be a cluster. So it doesn't necessarily have to be linked by the cognition. It could be linked by the body sensation. Yeah. What are the experiences where you remember that knot in, in your stomach? Right. Right.
0: Um,
1: it could be clustered around other features other than just cognition, but they have a similar link.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even uh, experiences. So a cluster around um, sexual assaults you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that uh, it's not just one, there's a series of them. So those are all going to be linked together in their nervous system because there's similarities, but they're distinct enough that we're going to process them separately. Uh, but they're all uh, revolving around this one particular theme of experience. Um, the other thing that can happen is that it's sort of a chronological cluster. So sometimes traumas, um, you know, chronologically, there's a lot that happens there. So an easy example of this would be a natural disaster. So there's the moment that the tornado hits, right? Then there's the aftermath of mm-hmm. walking out of the house and seeing the devastation. And then there's the finding out that, you know, my friend passed away. Mm-hmm. And then there's the process of rebuilding, right? So it's, it's one event But there's a series of traumatic moments that had um, similar but slightly different felt experience. And um, all of them need to get attention all of their own because of those slight variations. But it makes sense to do them all together in a series. Um, So sometimes it's all around uh, kind of one big experience that had multiple traumatic elements to it over a a span of time.
1: Yeah. And in that example, you know, that... And like many traumas can last. You yeah. know, It's it yes. could go a year, two years. Yeah. Five an years illness. Of the yeah, a yes. battle
0: with cancer. Geez, I mean, think about COVID and kind of mm-hmm. the layers and the multiple targets that are involved in an experience like that. Um, but they're all very, very linked together and the link is obvious and clear. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So in that we're looking for what the link is and identifying each of the experiences that are a part of that grouping. Mm-hmm and then we begin to target and process through those. On the second part of this, we're gonna talk about how do we know what order to work on right. each of these targets with, but we won't go there quite yet. Um, but we have you know, a list of what those are and then we begin to process through those. Yes. One of the greatest benefits of this approach is it is going to cover more ground than the acute focused. Mm-hmm. We're going to see more significant changes occur. So a client's presentation of anxiety, um, rather than it just changing around, I don't have as much anxiety driving now, we're gonna see it more generalizable and, and a, a greater trait change, which that's a term we've talked about before, the difference between state change of just changing the way I currently feel, my current state of experiencing this moment mm-hmm. into more broader trait changes. Yeah. How do I show up in the world in general? Um, and so we're going to get more of that trait change uh, presentation and be able to cover more ground with this approach. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of the um, the limitations or restrictions is it takes longer, yeah. right? So someone who's limited financially or isn't going to be seeing you for very long. It doesn't have to take a really long time, but depending on what their trauma history looks like, they may have three or four targets. They mm. may have 15 targets. Yeah. Um, so it is going to take a little bit longer to do that. But we do know if we're very strategic in how we're sequencing them, how we're selecting where to start, a belief-driven or cluster-issue-focused approach can actually move quite quickly. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. more of where we, we talk about in you know, Three to four months of therapy, yeah. we could move through
0: a pretty significant issue-focused yeah. approach, or in one five-day retreat, mm-hmm. right? So this is a, a space that you know we use this approach a lot in. Um, while you know, because of how we like to operate and you know, our grounding in the SIP model, it's still very developmentally informed as far as what issue we're going to decide to focus on first. But we've got practical limitations, meaning we've got five days or three mm-hmm. days, and we want to get some significant uh, shift for that client within that limited amount of time, and an issue focus like that uh, can be really helpful. I'm thinking of an example you use a lot, Jen, of the issue of experiencing safety in relationship. Mm-hmm. Can I can I experience that? Now, that's developmentally informed because that's such a basic developmental need, but you can do um, a cluster and an issue-focused treatment plan around that developmental need if we have practical limitations.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say this is the place I see most often therapists start. Yeah. Um, Aside from some of the acute focus that might be for the goal of regulating or reducing symptoms enough, this is a really good middle ground starting Mm -hmm. place where if you don't know, am I going to have this client for like a good year and a half. Yeah. How invested (laughs) are they? Or are we going to have, you know, six to eight months together as average and do this work? And so kind of a good starting place. Um, this approach you'll see oftentimes the float back utilized. Mm -hmm. You don't utilize a float back in the acute.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you would utilize it here where they come in with a presentation, we're saying, let's float back and find the earliest time that this showed up for you. And yeah. then some of the other more significant times that that happened. And now we have a an issue focused treatment plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, the final one is developmental. Mm-hmm. Also sometimes called comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is comprehensive. Yes. It covers all of it. <laughs> uh-huh. Which is why it takes a lot longer, but also why we like it a lot better. <laughs> yes.
1: So in this we're looking at, we need to get a full picture of mm-hmm. all of the trauma. And we're not just categorizing trauma, we're looking at the impact of trauma as a whole. Right. Um, not just, yeah, these categories or clusters, but looking at this is a a nervous system that has dramatically been impacted and shaped by the life experiences that they have had. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And we need to really comprehensively go in and address and target and reprocess. So if you have a client who has a strong negative cognition of I'm not enough, and I'm unlovable and I'm stupid and, and I'm, I'm worthless yeah. and I'm not safe. Mm-hmm. And it covers all the And categories. I can't trust people. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It just, it covers all the categories of negative cognitions. Mm-hmm. We could do a belief or cluster approach with each one of those individually, right. or we zoom out and we say, how do we look at this as a comprehensive approach, a whole person and approach it in a holistic way? And so you can utilize, um, I've heard people talk about utilizing like genogram or timeline Mm -hmm. for this. I personally always lean towards the timeline approach Mm -hmm. of looking at starting processing trauma in early childhood, knowing Mm -hmm. that those life experiences have a direct impact on everything after that. Yes. And the clients who most benefit from this approach are those who typically have a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. in early childhood. Mm And so we start in that of not um, just kind of working through that trauma from beginning, moving th- forward through that in a developmental way. Um, Francine Shapiro in her second text recommends that you don't start with trauma before that early school age time, so like five, six. Let those be your first targets um, because the, the more um, implicit memory and processing of that is different. Mm-hmm. It's very different. It's very powerful. But to someone who's never experienced EMDR or has never worked on that kind of trauma, it can be an overwhelming experience. Right. So we start with those early childhood memories that they have explicit memory of them mm-hmm. and process several of those and then move back into um, preverbal memories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think um, that, you know, that demarcation of verbal, nonverbal, or preverbal. Um, and explicit implicit as far as our nervous system is concerned you know that's about the time where real memory gets formed Mm -hmm. and we start having more narrative memory so our sense of self really really sort of takes root in an aware sense right around that age anyway and so that tends to be a comfortable place for people to start um The preverbal traumas are incredibly important, but if you guys have ever processed any of those, it's sort of like attempting to hold a jellyfish sometime. Uh, (laughs) Like, you know, you're doing it, but it's a little unclear on what exactly is happening and... Um, once we have enough experience with it as a therapist we can do that confidently and it's incredible but we got to remember that that's a weird experience for a client right it's it's, uh, very similar to if you've ever tried to process a dream which by the way you can do and I highly recommend it but it's kind of weird right because it's uh, more symbolic it's more affective affective with an a Um, it's not as explicit and narrative and clear for the client and while it's still really beneficial it can leave them feeling a little bit um off kilter and so we save that for once they have a really trusting relationship not only with us but with EMDR Mm -hmm. once they get it right they've really incorporated that EMDR um is supportive in these specific ways so that they can move into kind of the wild wild west of <laughs> doing emdr with pre targets um and really be able to trust and relax into that process even in the less uh clear times yeah mm-hmm.
1: And with this approach, the therapeutic relationship is going to be more important than ever. Yeah. We're looking at dealing with attachment wounds mm-hmm. and needing to be able to have safety in the relationship that is offering the healing before we can even go back in and attempt healing on those experiences. Yeah. So the therapeutic relationship is important across the board. I would never ever underemphasize that. But when we're talking about a developmental approach, it says that relationship is the therapy
0: yeah Yeah.
1: like that has to be present
0: well and one of the other really important things about the comprehensive or developmental approach is that extended resourcing and preparation is Always part of it, yes. Um, because the assumption is is that somebody that has developmental trauma, part of that is an underdevelopment of natural resources internalized mm-hmm. in their nervous system. So that is going to be a part of our work. And what Jen is saying about our relationship being so important, that's part of that. That they are re-experiencing a safe relationship, so that their nervous system can integrate that as a resource going forward, because that's not something that they had or had enough of when they were young. Um, so we're always pendulating back and forth between reprocessing the early traumas and the developmental traumas and resourcing and adding in positive material that their nervous system missed out on in their developmental years.
1: Yeah. Some of the drawbacks to this approach are related to finances, resources. It's long, yeah. Yes, it yep. takes a lot longer. Uh-huh. We're moving more cautiously, slowly. Um, we can still see big shifts happen and, and we definitely do those really profound moments, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more to work on here. Yeah. We're moving throughout their entire development, their lifespan, mm-hmm. and addressing all of the trauma, not just one category of trauma. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for those reasons, we really enjoy doing it. <laughs> uh, but also for those reasons, it can be challenging both as the, the therapist, because you really have to trust that you're going to see those results over months and sometimes often years, mm-hmm. rather Rather than over a handful of sessions or a few months Um, so we have to adjust our expectations but also have a good enough ability to conceptualize what's going on that we still know that what we're doing matters that we're still targeting things that are going to get us that generalization that we want and know how to monitor and measure that process effectively
1: yeah so kind of in brief when it comes to target sequencing we can, once we know what approach we're utilizing, we can determine from there what order of, how do we want to order these mm-hmm. targets? And you can, there's not a right or wrong. That's right. There's the most effective and efficient approach, which mm-hmm. is starting with the earliest, <clears throat> clearing that one first and moving forward from there. And you hit the, f- the first time it happened and the worst time it happened and a recent time it happened. Yeah, That's a very direct, you know, speedy approach where we just dive right in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's appropriate and many times it's not. It's overwhelming to the nervous right. system. Right. So if that feels like that's a little bit too rigorous of an approach, then we move into how do we modify that so that we're meeting the the needs of the client where they're not exceeding their window of tolerance. We may start with some recent experiences mm-hmm. to ease them into, as we talked earlier, of kind of revealing more about what's back there, um, we may start with um, you know something that's really low on the SUD score. Yeah. So starting with some of their lower impact mm-hmm. events that are still related to that treatment plan, but doing several of those to build some adaptive networks, some resources out of that mm-hmm. to then be able to <clears throat> excuse me access the more um, traumatic experiences that are related to that network. Yeah, so we can modify how we're approaching these targets, but we want to make sure we're doing it with intention and that we're inviting the client in to be a part of the decision-making around that. Mm -hmm. We are not just determining it and prescribing it to them. We're utilizing it as a relational tool to explore, hey, what feels best to you? What is it that you want to work on? What's your body, what messages are your body sending you about working on this today? Mm -hmm. And letting that be something that we explore and discover together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that the other thing about taking that approach of doing some lower targets first, um, and not necessarily, you know, you've heard us talk about low impact events and practice targets and things like that that are disconnected from the theme. And this is something different. This is when we're still working on targets that are connected to our main goal. Um, but we're choosing ones that the set is lower, right? The, the distress is not quite as intense and particularly with complex presentations that can be incredibly important because that gives us a window in to how is their system going to respond to doing this in the first place? Um, are there any underlying strategies that we're going to see present once we actually try to target these things, such as dissociation or uh, some personality disordered behavior or addictive behavior compulsive behavior things like that and so if we have somebody with a really complex presentation this is a way of kind of exploring how's this going to go before we're diving into the first the worst and the most recent Um, because the first and the worst are about as intense as they sound it's the first and the worst like that's a lot uh, for any human being and so uh, easing in in this way uh, is very very supportive not only to their experience of doing this, but also to us as a therapist to understand that uh, what what might we need to add into their system in terms of resourcing. Back to that idea of we're always pendulating between resourcing and prep and processing for these kinds of clients. Well, you got to decide what extra resourcing to do. And doing these lower impact targets and sort of investigating how does this go gives us a lot of insight into what might we need to add in. What does their system need need most in order to be able to do this successfully and move into those harder targets that we're going to need to.
1: Yeah. So just kind of our final comments, really being a proponent for all of this is something we're explicitly talking about with our clients. Yeah. Um, It's a joint treatment plan. We're creating this and and setting our intentions together and letting Mm -hmm. them be aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it is part of maintaining the safety of the relationship. And then the second piece of it's always flexible. Mm -hmm. We may start with uh, belief driven and then determine there's a lot of trauma here. Let's move to comprehensive. And then from there determine, Hey, this new thing came up and we just need to do an acute focused and clear that and then move back. So it's flexible. Things are always changing and we're, The treatment planning phase is always happening. It's not just at the beginning. We're always exploring do we need to shift the way we're
0: approaching this? Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about this, I feel like it starts to get really, really obvious why we emphasize conceptualization skills so much, Mm -hmm. because that is how we make these clinical decisions. You know, we're outlining what the options are, but the actual nitty gritty of how do you make these clinical decisions hinge on our ability to conceptualize what's going on with our clients, the stories that they're telling us, which ones matter, which ones are maybe not as relevant to our therapeutic goals. All of those are choice points for us as a clinician. And even though we're in collaboration with our clients, at the end of the day, most often they look to us, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We want them to feel that sense of collaboration and we really mean it, but nine times out of 10, they're gonna look at us and say, what do you think? (laughs) And we need to have an educated answer still with options, But to be able to present them uh, with these options and an explanation of the pros and cons of each of them and the whys behind each of these and the experience that we can predict with each of these and so you know really really focusing on your clinical development with your conceptualization skills is a huge part of getting more confident with both your treatment planning approaches and your target sequencing Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Hopefully, that's shined a little bit more light for you on treatment planning, target sequencing. We could talk probably for. I was gonna say, I feel like this is a really high
0: level flyby of things that go way, way deeper. Yes.
1: And if Uh we talk really in depth on this in our consultation group, yeah, we do. um, In our. The whole process of consultation towards certification so
0: you can always reach out for more information mm-hmm. on that if you're interested absolutely so before we go guys we do want to uh, remind those of you that have already heard us talk about it and for our new people to let you know that retreats are something that we do here at bhc Um, It's one of our favorite things that we do, and we have recently trained several new clinicians that uh, work in our center to be able to do healing retreats as well. Um, And they are so much fun and just such a great opportunity to be able to set aside a few days um, to really go deep in on uh, some healing work. Um, healing retreats we have a lot of therapists that uh, recommend them to their clients and we work in tandem with you right in partnership with you to give your clients this experience of having an incredibly holistic wraparound a um, few days to to get some EMDR um, but beyond the EMDR they're also getting a really holistic treatment of what does it mean to be cared for held in a safe space and really really nurtured and thought about mm-hmm. in a very detailed detailed way. We have incredible support staff, we have great adjunctive services like massage therapy, equine therapy, yoga therapy, all kinds of stuff. Um, the food's great because we really believe that the food is an important part of it. (laughs) Super important. Um, but we, we've created these retreats to be very, very immersive and the amount of shift and change and progress that we see for people that come through and do these retreats is just, um, very, very inspiring. And we kind of started it as a little side thing, but because of how effective they are, um, it's really, really grown. And, uh, most of our clinicians are doing them now as well. So, it's also a great opportunity for you as therapists to have your own healing work done. Sometimes it can be hard, um, to find an opportunity, uh, to do our own healing work in our hometown. So we have a lot of therapists that kind of get out of Dodge for a minute and come in, uh, hide with us and literally retreat, uh, into one of our locations. We have a lovely farm location now mm-hmm. with fields and horses and wildlife and Oak Grove. I really like it. <laughs> it's, <very special. laughs> it's so nice. Um, and to just come and be really immersed in a nurturing environment as a therapist is so therapeutic. And healing for us, and makes us so much better at uh, serving our clients the way that uh, we all want to. So, if you're interested in getting more information, you can uh, do that on our website at BeyondHealingCenter.com. You can also always email us and ask questions about those retreats at therapy at BeyondHealingCenter.com, and our retreat coordinator Brooklyn will answer any questions if uh, you have any. She'll get on the phone with you and talk to you about all of the different options that you can choose from. So, please reach out and uh, let us serve you and your clients in that way because it's one of our favorite things that we get to do. So thank you guys so much for listening and hopefully we'll see you soon at a training or a retreat and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.